This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Start Your Week. The Bunker is your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Ros Taylor and joining me today is Gavin Esler. Hello, Gavin. Hello, and what a busy week it is. <laughs> it is a very busy week. I was wondering all the things I had to leave out of the script yesterday. So listeners, please be patient. We're waiting with trepidation, of course, to see when Israel decides to launch its ground invasion of Gaza. It's already announced several deadlines for people living in Gaza to evacuate south, which have all come and gone. Around half a million people are now thought to have left. Gavin, harrowing reports are coming out of Gaza. What is the situation there? Well, as far as far as we know, it is pretty chaotic. It's obviously absolutely horrible for the people of Gaza who are presumably, as you would be and I would be, terrified as to what is about to happen. Just take one step back. I mean, what they've been told is a million of them from North Gaza have got to get out of North Gaza. That is like, and they were given an ultimatum of 24 hours. That is like telling the people of Birmingham that they have got to leave the city within 24 hours. I mean, just imagine how complicated this is, particularly since the fighting continues, there's shelling, there's bombing and so on. So they must be absolutely terrified. And their real hope, I suppose, uh, for some of them, is that the one crossing which Israel does not run, which is the Rafah crossing into Egypt, may be open even as we speak. We don't know. Anthony Blinken, US Secretary of State, appears to think that he has negotiated that. But that creates other problems. You know, Egypt has been very, very reluctant to open that crossing because what they don't want is a lot of people displaced from Palestine coming to Egypt, staying there and not being able to get back. And it may be, it may be that they'll let in dual nationals. In other words, people like the in-laws of Hamza Youssef, the Scottish First Minister, who perhaps have dual nationality. I don't know the precise situation for them. Uh, There's certainly probably some American and other people with European passports in Gaza who are also Palestinian. So we don't really know, but this is just another stage in a very, very complicated situation for everybody and terrible for the people involved. Yes, it seems that the border crossing, if it opens, will only be open for a few hours for exactly that reason, that Egypt is worried about a huge migrant flow. And I imagine the scenes at the crossing will be chaotic if and when it does open. What will the invasion involve? Because Israel says it will attack by land, sea and air. Do we have a sense of what they're planning to do when they arrive in Gaza? Well, that is very that is a very, very important point. What are they going to do? Are they going to try to occupy Gaza? Joe Biden has warned against occupation, and any Israelis who were around in the 1980s will know that the occupation of parts of Lebanon did not go well and was actually a bit of a disaster for Israel itself. So while one can understand that they want to get in and, as they would see it, root out Hamas after these atrocities that have been committed against Israelis, 
This will involve the kind of fighting that no army particularly wants to get involved in, which is in a built-up area with a lot of civilians, a lot of buildings. It's going to be very difficult to use tanks in those areas. There could be a lot of Israeli casualties. I'm looking at this for the moment from the, the Israeli point of view, rather than the civilian point of view or what Hamas can do. So the, the Israelis know this. They have great experience in it. But they've also got a coalition government led by Benjamin Netanyahu, for whom this, uh, and there will be a reckoning for him at some point, has been a great policy failure. So what faith, although we, we hear reports from the Israeli army saying we're ready to go, we're ready to go in, we're ready to do a duty, and they are very well trained, it is going to be pretty awful for them. And it's going to be even worse for any Palestinians who are going to be there. And it could take a very long time as well. And so we are on the all on edge for this. And then the, the, the other part of it is, will it spread? Because of course, now Israel appears to have evacuated or be in the process of evacuating about 28 communities near the Lebanese border because they're worried about Hezbollah. And turning to the UK, the Foreign Secretary and his shadow were both interviewed on Sunday about their positions, and it was really hard to put a cigarette paper between them. There now seems to be a big diplomatic push on a number of fronts led, as you would expect, by the US to persuade Israel to try to limit civilian suffering. What do they hope to achieve? Well, taking the British first, you know, David Lamy, for example, has been very clear, anti-Semitism in Britain is unacceptable. And he has been very clear, while people can, of course, demonstrate in favour of the Palestinians and this humanitarian catastrophe, there have been anti-Semitic incidents, there have been uh, Jewish schools have been closed, and that's uh, unacceptable. And I think James cleverly would agree. The British position, however, I have to say, when I when I saw the Prime Minister with a, a bunch of naval ratings and talking about also we're going to commit 20,000 troops to, to Northern Europe at some point, I mean, they love this figure 20,000, don't they? They cut 20,000 police officers. They've reintroduced 20,000 police officers. They talked about uh, accepting 20,000 people under the Afghan resettlement scheme. And last time I checked, there was only a handful of people. There's real concern within the British government, of course, and the civil service and the military about what could happen. But there's also a bit of posturing, to be honest. I mean, we're cutting our military back to levels not seen since 1715. And in the end, you know, we are becoming the mouse that roared as far as that's concerned. So there's a lot going on in the background. There's a lot of, for instance, what can Qatar do? What can other, other Arab states do? What can Saudi Arabia do? And what will Iran do? And Britain's voice is there as a adornment, I'm afraid. We are not the main player, however much posturing goes on at Westminster. That being said, Labour has so far been pretty unequivocal in its backing for Israel. Is that starting to change as the extent of the suffering in Gaza becomes more apparent? Because there is no doubt that the leadership will come under pressure from members and from some MPs to take a harder line against Israel. Well, there's the, the, there's a lot going on internally. I mean, the Corbyn era is over within the Labour Party. That is that is quite clear. But as as William Hague and other people have pointed out, and and the Labour Party well knows, Israel could be falling into a trap here in terms of they may be militarily triumphant in the end in northern Gaza or elsewhere in Gaza. But the suffering of the Palestinians will come to the fore. And we are seeing a return to two tropes that play into the different narratives here. For Israelis, the brutality, 
of Hamas reminds people of the Holocaust, and for Palestinians, it reminds what's going on reminds people of the Nakba, the catastrophe of 1948 when they lost their land. And these two narratives have never gone away, and because of political impotence, really, and inability to move on both sides, they won't go away. So what we will see over, the, unfortunately, the next weeks and perhaps months, perhaps years, is a return to this because both sides are victims and have reasons to to explain their victimhood because we're seeing it and it is appalling. But there's nobody with an easy solution to it, obviously. Yes, again, the BBC's coverage has been a flashpoint. It sometimes feels as if it's a proxy punch ball for the frustrations of supporters on, on both sides. Pro-Palestinian demonstrators threw red paint at the BBC HQ in Portland Place on Saturday Others say the BBC's refusal to call Hamas a terrorist organisation shows its bias. You used to work for the BBC, as did I briefly. What do you think of their coverage so far? Well, what I've seen, what I have seen, has been extremely balanced and very, very moving and, and incredibly sad under hugely difficult conditions. I'm frankly, I'm glad I'm not there. In some ways, this is the politics of distraction. We saw Grant Shapps, the defence secretary, I think that's his job, he said five cabinet posts, I think within a year or so, using the BBC as a distraction in an interview with Michelle Hussain because he wouldn't answer a simple question that she had asked. It may be a complicated answer, but it was a perfectly legitimate question. And so this really is the politics of distraction. We should be worried about the fate of Palestinians. And actually, we should be concerned about what happened to these Israelis in what the BBC repeatedly described as an attack by an organisation deemed a terrorist organisation, Hamas. And that is normal for the BBC to do that, and it's normal for other journalists to do it. It's it, it's actually good practice. If the BBC were to characterise all kinds of people, what would they say about Boris Johnson? Boris Johnson, a well-known liar? Or would they say Boris Johnson, who is quite often considered to be somebody who is not familiar with the truth? You know, there's frustration in my voice because I think this is such an important event in our lifetimes with really disastrous consequences, not just for the region, but beyond. And for a few people to simply attack the BBC for not not backing their side, essentially, or not saying the things they would like, just seems to me a total distraction. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Moving to Europe, it looks as if the Polish Law and Justice Party, which has been in power for eight years, is on its way out. What are the results as far as we know them? Well, the exit polls, and I think exit polls in Poland are supposed to be pretty accurate, suggest that about 54%, so obviously a, a majority, support three democratic parties and therefore civic coalition, the, the leading, leading one of those three parties, led by Donald Tusk, who is very familiar to people who 
you know, involved in European affairs and is very highly respected in Brussels and elsewhere, he may, you know, uh, finally become prime minister and so on. That would be quite a bit of relief, I think, across Europe that this uh, will happen, particularly since it's been the highest turnout since 1989 and the creation of modern Poland. So the Law and Justice Party, right-wing party of uh, Kaczynski, looks like they're out. But uh, as I say, these are based on uh, exit polls. And Poland, to state the obvious, obviously is a key player within the European Union, and they have been at odds with the EU for various things, and also is a key player in terms of getting aid to Ukraine, because they're a border state. And they have a lot in common. Ukraine and Poland actually have what can one say, swapped land over the the years. Historically, they are so uh, closely connected. So I think this will be very, very good news for most of the politicians in Brussels and across Europe. And at home, the Scottish National Party's conference got underway in Aberdeen at the weekend. The First Minister, Hamza Youssef, as you mentioned earlier, has family in Gaza and has been talking about his in-laws' fears. He gives his keynote speech on Tuesday. Now, the SNP suffered a big defeat to Labour in Rutherglen a couple of weeks ago, and are generally felt to be pretty beleaguered. They are more or less level with Labour in the polls now, which is a significant fall on their position before. What are their current plans for independence? Well, I'm just actually just back from uh, Edinburgh, where uh, I was chairing a discussion at Edinburgh University's McEwen Hall about leadership. And the participants were talking about lack of empathy in leaders. And then at the same time, Hamza Youssef showed what I thought, and I'm not making a political point about the SNP, I'm making a personal point about him, a great deal of empathy, because here is somebody who is in real political trouble at home because of things that you've said, the the support from the SNP, and they've had various other problems which uh, um, involve various police investigations and so on. Hamza Youssef has been in a position of great difficulty. His in-laws are in Gaza, and yet he showed his human side. And I think people, whatever they think of his politics, will, will warm to that. Politically, he is now seems to be suggesting that if they get 29 uh, seats, in other words, a majority of the of the seats available in Scotland at the next general election, that will be a mandate to call for a referendum. The problem, of course, is that it's not in his gift. He might argue that, but Westminster can say, sorry, you're just, just not going to get it. It has been very difficult to follow a very charismatic leader and lead the party when the tide appears to be receding away from Scottish nationalism. The only thing I would say is that Alex Salmond, when he lost the 2014 a referendum. He produced a book and he gave me a copy and the book is called uh, The Dream Shall Never Die. So <laughs> Scottish nationalism, whatever happens in the next election next year, uh, is not going to go away. And that thread will will continue. And the party may be in the doldrums for a bit, but they have been in power for, I think it's about 16 years, actually, which was even someone like German Chancellor Angela Merkel, after 16 years, one of the most brilliant politicians of my lifetime, she looked a bit tired and seemed to be rather glad to go. So they haven't done, and again, I'm not making a political point, but in terms of their staying power, they have done not too badly. And speaking of referendums, the fallout from the Indigenous referendum in Australia continues. Australia voted no. Tell us about what was at stake there. Well, it was about Indigenous people having essentially some of their rights recognised and to make sure that they were represented in in Parliament and so on. I just, 
I have to say that I have always thought referendums generally are a very bad idea unless they're endorsing something which has already happened. So there was a 1975 referendum in Britain that said, do you think being members members of the European Economic Community is a good idea? And Britain voted yes, and that, that made sense. But in all sorts of other things, uh, not just Brexit, which we didn't know what we were voting for, frankly, it is used by politicians to solve problems that they have rather than uh, solve problems that people have. And a referendum is always a in my view, always a bad way to do it. And it goes back to Edmund Burke, who said, essentially, in Britain, we elect MPs to take decisions for us. If we don't like them, we get rid of them. But what we don't do is have constant voting on every issue in order to uh, tell them what to do. And this just seems to me to prove it. It's been very divisive, according to the Australian press, and it seems to have created problems rather than solve them. And we should also note that the Labour Party in New Zealand was defeated at the weekend by the centre-right, so it's very much the end of the Jacinda Ardern era. She, of course, resigned earlier this year. And there are even more elections at home. The Mid-Bedfordshire and Tamworth by-elections are on Thursday, and you'd think the Tories were bound to lose Nadine Doris's seat, but that's not a given, is it? No, it's not. I mean, it seems to me that this is everything that's wrong with the British political system in one constituency. I mean, there's Nadine Doris, who, if under the um, uh, Conservative wish to make sure that you had to turn up for work or be available for work, otherwise you would have your your benefits cut, she didn't do that. And and so that's quite that's one of the things. But the other thing is, this is absolutely everything that's wrong with the British political system. Lib Dems and Labour are going to split the anti-Conservative vote. Now, one of them might just scrape through. But it's quite likely that the Conservatives, with something like 35% of the vote, will actually retain retain the seat. And, you know, I, I constantly return to Boris Johnson's stonking majority of 80 seats in 2019, based on 43% of the vote, with a third of people not voting. So that means actually only about 30% of people gave him his stonking majority. So we permit this, and we're just going to see it again, possibly, in Nadine Doris's seat in Mid Bedfordshire, and I just, I just, I just cannot understand why the only two countries in Europe that have this ludicrous system for their main legislature are the United Kingdom and Belarus. And in more broken Britain news, you spent a chunk of yesterday stuck on a train, I believe, <laughs> that wasn't going anywhere for a long time. Was that due to the enormous signal failure at Euston, or was it another problem? Oh, I think it was. Uh, I I was went up to Scotland on a train which stopped at Newcastle because they couldn't get any further and we had to get off and we were late and it was awful. And then I was in Ilkley Book Festival having a fantastic time and the, the train that, to take me to Leeds for my connection didn't run. What's interesting for me anyway is reflecting on it, how wonderful the train staff were. I really think the people who work on trains who handle were grace under pressure and they deserve a pay rise. That's all I would say. Whereas the the train system is just another example of how the public sphere in Britain from 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 the NHS to the way we run our water companies to all sorts of things everybody knows about it is fundamentally broken. We all know that. And indeed, because we have run out of prison places, the government is going to announce ways to cut the prison population today, deporting people, more community sentences, and even what the Times calls pop-up cells in jail yards, which the mind boggles, really. 
Jobs and wage stats are out on Tuesday and the inflation figure on Wednesday. So that will be interesting to see if uh, it has fallen at all. Yesterday, the Observer reported that Labour is going to take its social care reform plan out of the manifesto. Although Wes Streeting was saying social care would still be in the manifesto this morning, I should point out. It's also going to, to radically scale back its plans to reform the Lords. Both of these will be a big disappointment to many Labour supporters. Parliament is back today after the party conferences, but you're wondering what the point is, aren't you? Yeah, I am actually. I, I, I mean, what is the point of Parliament nowadays when Rishi Sunak makes one of the biggest announcements of his time in office about the cancellation of HS2 to a party conference in Manchester, which was cack-handed anyway, because he was telling people in Manchester that they're not going to get HS2. But he didn't tell it to Parliament. And there's a lot of things that go on in which Parliament has been sidelined. Actually, I was given a book by Nick Harvey, former Lib Dem MP. I've got it here in front of me, actually, by Nick Harvey and Paul Tyler. Can Parliament take back control? Because they're worried, two Lib Dems, and I know other people in other parties, uh, Conservative and Labour, are very worried that Parliament consistently is being sidelined. And it is unfortunate if Labour do not try to reform further the House of Lords, simply because, yet again, I mean, what a construction we've got. We've got about 200 members of the House of Lords who do a lot of good work and try very hard. We've got about another 600 who are some of the weirdest bunch of people you could ever meet, including, and I I don't mean to be rude about bishops, but why are members of the state religion in the United Kingdom automatically members of the upper house of parliament the only other place where the state religion is represented of right in parliament is iran so again why do we have this why do we allow this why do we allow you know the the guy who did the interview with boris johnson about how, how his great hobby was painting buses do you remember making model buses ross kempsell he's in the house of lords possibly for the next 50 years why do we have the son of an ex kgb agent in the house of lords it seems to me bonkers and to most people bonkers however i can understand that if we have a labor government Keir Starmer may have more urgent problems that directly affect people than trying to reform this seemingly irreformable upper chamber. We fiddle around with it. We've got, I think it's 92 hereditary peers still there. Why? Mm, yes, I can see the need for, I can see the complexity potentially of constitutional reform, etc., etc. But still, kicking out the hereditaries would instantly make the chamber smaller and will instantly sort out a problem which we have not managed to sort out. And it seems to me extraordinary. Anyway, I spent some of the weekend watching the Taylor Swift Eras movie, which was very exciting. There was indeed dancing in the aisles and I managed to even break a glass of alcohol-free um, gin and tonic. So that was how exciting it got for me. But there was an exciting rugby union match against Fiji too, which means England will play South Africa in the semi-finals. Will you be watching, Gavin? Well, I think you missed the really exciting match, which was uh, New Zealand uh, defeating Ireland. And Ireland came very, very close. And the Irish team are terrific. And I think the New Zealand team are um, extraordinary. And I didn't, I didn't see the England. I think I might have been stuck on a train. I can't remember um, <laughs> where, where I was, but I didn't see the England. England are doing better than expectations. Let's put it this way. But New Zealand are absolutely formidable. And that's it for Start Your Week. Thanks, Gavin. Thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow with another bunker.
and you can back us on Patreon by searching for Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor with Gavin Esler. The producer was Liam Tate, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>